Hey, J. Crew, producer Josh Cross here. Because of the never-ending stream of holidays, this show was recorded at the end of last week. There is one thing we wanted to add to the episode, though, and that is Kanye, get cock enough and yum. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. A post-belated Gemar Chatimatova to you and yours, my friend. Thank you kindly. A pre-Sukkot Gemar Chatimatova and tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. What Jewish holiday is it today and why? And should you be fasting? <laughs> And do I have to go to work? Today on the show, our Jewish guest is Mordechai Lavovitz, founder and clinical director of Jewish Queer Youth, an organization that works to support and empower LGBTQ Jewish youth, especially in the Orthodox, Hasidic, and Sephardic worlds. He has some stuff to say about the recent discussion we've been having about Yeshiva University, a world he knows well. Our Gentile of the Week is Pastor Corey Brooks, the founder of Project Hood. We spoke to him at our live show in Chicago. We are calling him the pastor on the roof because he's raised a lot of money raising publicity by living on a roof. And because he likes tradition, tradition. <laughs> he is one of the all-time great Gentiles of the week. And finally, a bonus JOTW. We check in with former tableteer Yair Rosenberg, who's now at The Atlantic, where he writes the newsletter Deep Shettle. And he has a new album out of Shabbat Music. But before we get to those unimprovable guests of the week, we have to do a little high holiday wrap-up. And if I may, could I begin my high holiday wrap up with something that happened before the high holidays, which I never got around to talking about? It's kind of like ancient history. It's back in 5782, but I've been wanting to tell this story. Will you indulge me? That book is closed, but we'll reopen it for the day. And it's been sealed, but we're breaking the seal for you. We'll unseal it. We're steaming the seal open uh, <laughs> stealthily. Where does the story take us? Where does it begin? So I was in Stop and Shop where I do all my shopping. Very Yom Kippur appropriate. Continue. I'm there. I was at the pharmacy. And I had with me a child. I forget which child. And <laughs> one of the many. Hopefully it was yours. Right. A 12-year-old boy comes up to me wearing a kippah and, you know, sits is showing and says, excuse me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, I'm Jewish. He said, have you put on tefillin today? I said, no, not today. He said, would you like to put on tefillin? And I initially I said no. And then I thought, you know, Rosh Hashanah is in three days. If not now, when? Right? As, <laughs> as, as Emma Watson always says. Right? <laughs> so I called back and I was like, hey, Sonny, I will put on tefillin with you. If you'll meet me in the parking lot in 10 minutes, I have to finish getting this prescription filled. And he said, sure. And then he stays and talks to me and he says, what's your name? I say, Mark. I said, what's your name? His name, of course, was? Mendel. Menachem Mendel. Menachem. Probably Menachem Mendel. And we start chatting. And then two women come up to him, older women, probably in their, you know, 50s, a little older than me, wearing long skirts, looking like they're some from some religious sect, maybe Menachem Mendel's, maybe some other religious sect. And they yell at him. They sort of interrupt us and say, hey, hey, why do you wear fringes with blue on your garment? And he says, well, because in Leviticus, it tells me, and one of the women, the sort of alpha woman of these two women interrupts him again and says, your book, Leviticus isn't your book. You didn't learn that from your book, Leviticus. You st you're the Khazars. Mm. You stole, you're the white people who stole oh, wow. the, the Judaism and those books from our people. And she starts yelling at him. And she says, we wear fringes of blue on our garments because it's our book. And that's why we do it. I don't know why you do it. Okay, so at some point in this quarrel that they were picking with Benachem, I realized who they were. I realized these two women were from one of the very, very small and fringe religious sects in the African-American community, not 
well-known even to other black people. This group was one of the black Israelite sects. And these are groups that claim to have the true rights to call themselves Jews. And they claim to be the true authors of Jewish books, which they say were stolen back in medieval times by white invaders. And this is a very ahistorical claim. There's no reason to believe that any of it is true. And nobody believes it except like 0.0001% of blacks, whites, or other humans. To be clear, these are not people you'd see at synagogue. They're not part of any Jewish framework. They're not Jews of color. It's essentially another religion. And, and, but it's another religion that wants to pick a fight with little Menachem in Stop and Shop. And I never met people who subscribe to these beliefs anywhere in my adoptive hometown. But apparently there are two of them and they were at Stop and Shop that day. So I sort of intercede and start fighting with them because I want to get Menachem Mendel's back. Hold on. And then the cashier says, excuse me, is there a former religion columnist for a major publication here? And Mark's like, well, I just so happened to be exactly that. What seems to be the trouble, officer? So, so I, This reality show gets better by the second. Go ahead. So I want to get Menachem Mendel's back because he's 12. And also historically correct, but okay, let's... let's. And you're literally tied to him because you have the tefillin. <laughs> exactly. Eddie and I have a, a parking lot tefillin date for seven minutes hence. So I start fighting with these two ladies and I say, well, actually, there's no historical evidence of that. And actually, what do you mean this is... I said, and I said, and can't we all get along? I mean, if you want it to be your book, anyone can read this book. You can wear whatever you want. Menachem Mendel can wear whatever... Like, why are you coming up and accosting? And they start yelling at me and he starts... And then they finally walk away. They walk away off to the frozen food aisle where they belong with their cold, cold hearts. That's right. <laughs> so then I go back to retrieve my prescription, to retrieve my quaaludes, to chill out. And Menachem comes over to me and he says, I'll see you in a few minutes. He says, but, you know, he said, don't, don't fight with people. He said, people pick fights because they're insecure about their beliefs and they want to impose them on others because actually they're trying to impose them on themselves and they have a lot of insecurity and uncertainty. But if you know what you believe, you have no need to fight with people. You will allow people to come to truth in their own good time. And meanwhile, you just be confident that you have the truth. So don't, don't, no need to fight with them. O.M. Hashem. Oh. So basically the Rebbe returned as a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> Another Menachem Mendel. To, to educate. Wow. Wait, that, I'm crying. That's amazing. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like I just got schooled on like wisdom. Well, yeah, him too, but you know. He's like, Who? <laughs> Dropping some serious pre-Yantif wisdom, this 12-year-old boy. You were like, right, but I'm a former debater. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically what he was saying to me was like, hey, alpha male former debater with fancy degrees from fancy schools and a room full of trophy, like with your debate hardware. I have no secular education at all. I can barely read English, but... And yet I'm smarter. <laughs> but <laughs> whichever child was with me was overhearing this. And I thought, like, you've just been schooled by Menachem. And in the parking lot, we met a few minutes later and he put on tefillin. And the end of the story, of course, is that as he's putting the tefillin on me, a couple African-American guys drive by in a truck. And I think they're about to ask us again some question about our religiosity and instead want... And he says, what are you doing? And I'm literally like the shell Roche is on my head and I'm all wrapped up and I couldn't look weirder to the secular eye. And I think, oh God, you know, now we're going to go down some sort of path again. And one of the guys leans out and says, I notice your bumper's all scraped up. I can fix that for 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> like he doesn't notice I have to fill it on. It was a, a profound pre experience and Menachem probably doesn't listen to Unorthodox, but if he does, I want to thank him. Menachem definitely listens to Unorthodox. I want to thank him. And he's the Jew of this week and every week hence. 
Does either of you have a Yontif experience that can even come close to that? No, no, no one could ever top that story, Mark. This is, <laughs> this is, this is like a Hasidic Misa. It's like not even a real life story. It's like a story <laughs> they'll be telling in shuls like a hundred years from now as inspiration for the high holidays. Rabbi Nachman's famous stop and shop pharmacy tale. This is literally Rabbi Nachman in, in the strip mall. It's fantastic. I just want to say that I had an incredible Yom Kippur. And you don't hear that that often. No. But I will say that on Wednesday morning, I got little Edith Cohen and I said, Edith, you're going to put on scratchy tights and you're going to put on a tie, <laughs> you're going to put on a dress and we are going to temple. So Edith went to temple for the first time. We went to a sprout service at Road of Sholem on the Upper West Side. And it was like a whole thing. There was a guy up there with a the guitar. And so we get there and they, they hand her like a little shaker. And she had the best time. She's 14 months. So they said, look, you could skip the avoda, but you know. They were like, look, you should probably sign up for a bat mitzvah slot now because they are <laughs> filling up. <laughs> You're like, but I'm too busy filling out my nursery school applications. <laughs> but she loved it. She was so happy. The music. And I was singing the songs with her and we were with a friend and her daughter. And I was so profoundly moved in a way that like, I never think of myself as being, I'm just like, oh, I'm ironic and cynical. It was amazing and watching her. And of course it was, it was just music, right? It was sort of like a music class she would go to, but the music meant something and the, and the words meant something. And, and it was, you know, things that I had grown up with and, and things that meant something to me. And I was emotional all day seeing like, this is just like this thing we share together. And we, this sounds silly, but it was, it was. I got to tell you, it doesn't sound silly at all. Yom Kippur, no joke, is my absolute favorite holiday. It's the only holiday that I think hits all the notes. First of all, it's a really joyous day. Like at its core, it's a day of like happiness and transcendence. Second of all, this kind of being in this weird state, not just, you know, being really hungry, but like being clad in white and like being in shul the whole day and, and sort of swaying. By the time I get to, to not even Naila, to Mincha, I'm so in this trance-like zone of just like, quivering and, and shaking and really feeling a deep emotional connection. And then you read this liturgy. It is the greatest single freaking work of genius mankind has ever put forward. It's astonishing how deep and moving and, and profound this thing is. I love this holiday. Honestly, I was the jerk in shows. Like we finished and the rabbi was like, I was at the Chabad on the Upper West Side. The rabbi was like, well, should we go to Havdal? And I was like, can we do Marv first? He's like, okay, let's go do Marv. And, you know, he did Marv and he's like, could we do Havdal? And I was like, can we do Kiddush now real quick? He's like, you just don't want this to end, right? It's like, I could go for four more days of this. You're such a teacher's pet. <laughs> I, Stephanie, it's not silly at all. Having a child is a new chance to reconnect with everything, with, with playfulness, with joy, with somersaults, with God. And my entire shul going life has been contemporaneous with my life of parenthood. You know, I joined a shul like 16 years ago to have a Simchat bot for our daughter, Rebecca. This year, I just want to say like, on your point about musicality, right? And how it like strips away all the irony. By about the 10th of Vinu Malkenu during the afternoon service right before Ni'ilah, you notice everyone singing loudly. Like the irony is gone and people are just shouting it. And then there's this moment in our synagogue when Marsha Beller always gets up and does the um, the Sephardi piyut, the Al-Nora Elilah, that begins Ne'ilah in the Sephardic tradition, but a lot of Ashkenazi shuls as well. And my daughter, Clara, stood next to me, and she was like looking through her sador, and I said, like, listen to this. This is really beautiful. And then she listened to it, and like she starts singing along with it. She's very musical. And by the end of it, like, I'm just, I'm just sobbing. 
And you're right. It's not the funnest holiday. I, I'm with you. I'm not with Liel that this is like the great. It's so great. And you're like, oh my God. I'm not crying. You're crying. We're all crying. Which all just puddles. No, it's true. But now I'm just like, oh, I want to take her to a sukkah. Like, I want to see these things with new eyes. And I'm, I'm just excited about this. Just wait for her first Shmini Atzeret. <laughs> wait for first Tanis Esther. <laughs> So speaking of childlike wonder, I've also been obsessed with the new season of Hebrew School, which is one of our Tablet Studios podcasts. Yes, we are all podcasts all the time. We've told you about Gate Crashers and the franchise, and Hebrew School is also back. It's hosted by the one and only Sarah Fredman Ader. There's kid contestants on each episode, and they answer really fun quizzes and games. And Sarah actually let me do a special segment for Unorthodox where she let me be a contestant playing our podcast, Hebrew School. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Sarah. What have you been up to lately? Um, just being a kid, listening to the Hebrew School podcast. What about you? Just having the time of my life with the Hebrew School podcast. I don't know if everyone who listens to Unorthodox knows that we have an all-new season of Hebrew School, as always, featuring amazing kid contestants playing lots of fun games to learn about all things Jewish. I thought it might be fun, Stephanie, to play a little game I like to call, Are You Smarter Than a Hebrew Schooler? All right, let's do it. I thought for our first game, we could do a little bit more cross promotion and talk about sports because I know that we just launched our incredible podcast, The Franchise. All right. Yes, sports always. So this first game is called Mazet. Mazet is Hebrew for what is this? And this is the game where I'm going to tell you two possible Hebrew definitions for an English word. One of them is the correct Hebrew word, and one of them I totally made up. Your job is to decide which is the right word. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first one is basketball. So I'm going to give you two possible Hebrew words that mean basketball, and you're going to tell me which one's right. The first one is Mishak HaJordan named after one of the best basketball players of all time, Michael Jordan. This NBA all-star is so popular in Israel, they actually named the entire sport in his honor. Or perhaps the way that you say basketball is kadur sal, a direct translation of the English words. Kadur is Hebrew for ball and sal is Hebrew for basket. Ergo, kadur sal, basketball. Okay, Stephanie, do you feel confident? Can you play Hebrew school and get this question right. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. I have to imagine that basketball was around in Israel before the 1990s. And even though it's a relatively new state, that there is a different name, that it is not the Jordan one. Winner. (laughs) Yes, you got it. 
The word is Kadorasal. I couldn't trick you this time, Stephanie. You got it. Michael Jordan, maybe one of the greatest players of all time. Israel actually has their own basketball stars, including Omri Kaspi, who was the first Israeli to be picked in the first round of the NBA draft. And do you want to do one more sports-themed Maza? Yes, I feel like I'm on a roll. Yeah, and I think I need to make this one a little trickier because it <laughs> turns out you are not ages 7 to 12. I'm going to give you two possible Hebrew definitions for the word stadium. The first choice is bimat sport, which means a sport stage, which kind of makes sense. All those players are basically on a stage for spectators to watch. Your second word is etstadion, which, like the English word stadium, derives from the Greek word stadion. The Greeks were the first to introduce the idea of sports competition to Israel when Alexander the Great conquered the land in 332 BCE. A little fun history corner for you. Greek rule was not really so good for the ancient Israelites. I think you probably have heard of a a little holiday called Hanukkah, but at least we got the Olympics out of it. So which word do you think means stadium? Bimat sport or etstadion? Um, I think it's bimat sport. Ooh, unfortunately, you are not smarter than a Hebrew schooler. Oh, no. <laughs> the correct answer is at Stadion, which is just one of the many ways that the ancient Greeks left their marks on Israel. Uh, you know what? It's been a pleasure to be a contestant. I'm sweating a little bit, but I had a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me on the show, Sarah. Thanks for giving it a try. That's Hebrew School. Subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. Subscribe right this minute. It is so good. For kids, adults. We are very proud of you, Stephanie. For kids of all ages. News of the Jews, only one possible News of the Jews item this week. It broke right before the holidays. We're catching up to it now. It is the Miami Boys Choir, which is neither from Miami nor really filled with boys because this group is all men now, nor is it really a choir. It's like a, it's like an acapella group. But Stephanie, what's going on? Basically, the internet has discovered an amazing Orthodox Boys Choir, the Miami Boys Choir. The internet has found these old videos of them, and they are now the hottest thing on TikTok. I appreciate you sending this story to me, but I actually think we really, we sort of need an insider to tell us a little bit about this. So to help us explain this story, which I love and I've been enjoying all of these videos, we're bringing on our producer, Quinn Waller, who's going to act as our social media consultant right now. (laughs) Quinn Waller, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for turning your camera on, joining the convo. Yeah, youth correspondent here. Quinn, explain sort of like the genesis of of why this story is like, just tell us what's going on here. Okay, so there's this app called TikTok. (laughs) She started (laughs) at the beginning. (laughs) There are videos on this app. And one of the things that you can do on this app is you can, like if somebody posts a video and you want to react to it, you can do like a side-by-side situation where you have the original video and then you have you yourself next to this video, like commenting on it in real time. A video that people are reacting to right now is this video of the Miami Boys Choir, which is this famous Orthodox Boys Choir. And I think this is from like the 80s or the 90s. I don't know. 
there are these like 10 year old kids singing these Jewish songs. And the one that's going viral right now is Yerushalayim. And they're just these kids like singing their hearts out. And it's just really wholesome and really good. Like it just really slaps. The beat drops really well. Like it's just a really good video. (laughs) And people are just really into it. Like not even just Jews. Like literally everybody on TikTok right now is obsessed with this boys choir. And it's just beautiful. It's just lovely to see. There's one tweet that says K-pop is over. We're listening to Orthodox pop from now on. I will say that the Rolling Stone headline is an Orthodox Jewish boys choir is unironically going viral on TikTok. And I'm like, I wish. Why would it be ironic? (laughs) It's not ironic. No one's making fun of these kids. Okay, so Quinn, I, the, the most important question, who's who's the Harry Styles? Who's the Zayn Malik? Like, give us the breakdown of, of the boy band personalities in this. Okay, so we open we open with Yoshi. And Yoshi is, he's really carrying it on his back, but he's really underappreciated. So he opens, he does his little line. And then we have C. Abramowitz, I think. So C. Abramowitz <laughs> is like the Justin Timberlake of the operation. Okay, to be honest, I really don't know that much about NSYNC. <laughs> But sure. <laughs> She's like, you and your old people references, like, in sync. Right. Sia Bravovitz is like the Nile Horan. Okay. For, if okay. we're doing One Direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the beat drops and we get, we get David Hershkowitz. He's the star, right? In my opinion, I think David is the star. I think David is the Harry Styles. David put up his own TikTok from now replying to this and pretending to sing with like a hairbrush as like a, you know, the video is from 2008. So he's a bit bit older now, but he's actually like the Lance Bass who has the best sense of humor about it. Cause I imagine he's not like a perfect, maybe he sings still. I don't know. He is. No, he is. He's using it to promote his own music now, but then let me finish because then we have Benjamin. Benjamin Cohen? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Z Cohen. (laughs) Last name, TBD. He really like takes you home. There's, it's, you know, okay, there were girls that like Harry Styles and there were girls that like Zayn Malik. And I think that that's what's going on with David and Benjamin right now. You know, some people think that Ben is the best. Some people think that Dave is the best. It's, they're duping it out. Personally, I'm a David Hershkowitz fan. I want to bring them all back together. Like I want to do a Jewish <sighs> pitch perfect where like the, the Bellas get back together and we take them on tour. Like, could we do this maybe for like for Christmas this year or something? For Christmas. <laughs> That's that's yes, a perfect yeah. perfect holiday for it. Tell me why no holidays in Cheshvan. <laughs> great. You're like surprisingly <laughs> quick with those little, with those little ditties. Leo's been on a lot of TikTok lately. I'm a I'm a boy band wannabe. I love this, and let's play a little bit of Miami Boys Choir's "Take On Yerushalayim." Yerushalayim. <laughs> And also news of the Jews this week. One big bit of news in the midst of these holidays, right before Sukkot starts, is that, you know, you're home, you're chilling, you're catching up on your TV. So we had to check in with Israeli actor Michael Aloni because you might be watching him right now in Shtisel or Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. We spoke to him a couple weeks ago about his new film, Plan A, which opened in theaters last week. Remember theaters? You should go to them. You can get a good seat. And it's available streaming on October 14th. This is a bit of our conversation with the great Michael Aloni. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Finding yourself in this completely iconic role as Kiva in Shtisel, 
a show that so many people are totally obsessed with. Do you ever get tired of talking about him being in his skin? Do you ever wish he would just go away and let you find new avenues and new characters? Or has he become like kind of a part of you? Since we shot Shtiso, many years have passed. And I think I had the uh, opportunity and blessing and a lot of luck to do various uh, roles. And I love the fact that people connect to a series in such a deep level and that the characters stays with them long after the show is done. And it just warms my heart to see how many people were able to be touched by Kiva's character and, and to still be longing for another season and to still be hoping to see more of that character evolving in, in other places. So tell us about your new film, Plan A. Well, this is an amazing movie that was directed and created by the Puzz Brothers. And they made this film on, I guess, the time of the Holocaust. But it's not necessarily the kind of like take on the Holocaust you would imagine because they're talking about the period of time after the war is over. And that's kind of like a period that they still haven't been revisited in films yet. It's a story that has never been told before, which is the untold story of the Jewish revenge. The fact that there were Jews after the war that took revenge on SS officers and high-ranked soldiers that were left behind. And so the Jewish brigade did come and kill about, rumors say, between 500 and 1,000. But then the bigger arc of this story is the Abba Kovner story, which is telling the story of someone who stayed behind. He was a partisan and he had this big plan on poisoning five big cities' water supply and then in that way taking a biblical revenge, which is six million for six million, eye for an eye for a tooth. So this is an incredible journey and August Deal is leading this movie uh, along with uh, Sylvia Hopes and myself. And it's just an amazing experience to shoot it. And I just, beside the fact that it's very emotional, it's such a strong movie, I think it's also a good entertainment at the end of the day because that's what the Puzz brothers know how to do. And you have a very demanding and fascinating role, to my mind, maybe the most complicated and demanding in, in the whole film, right? Tell us a little bit about the character and, and where he stands in relations to everyone else trying to orchestrate this horrible and yet strangely alluring plot without giving too much away. <laughs> I'll try. Uh, I mean, he starts as a, one of the Jewish brigade's officers who comes with the British army to the north of Italy, which is also a true story because the Jewish brigades after the war, they were joined in the war, but they were never given the chance to fight the Germans at that time. And so they were eagerly waiting to come and fight the Nazis. But when they finally got the chance to do that, the war was almost over. And when they came there, they were basically trying to help the refugees finding their way back home or back to Israel. And under the British officers' noses, they were secretly taking revenge on SS soldiers that were then coming back to their normal life and kind of like hiding the fact that they were serving the Nazi administration and they were killing innocent people during the war. And so what they're trying to do is verify under two intelligence sources that this person, he is the person that they believe he is. And if he is, then they kill him. And they take with them one of the refugees portrayed by August Deal, and they take him under his wing and help him take revenge on what happened to his family. But after that, they're planning to go back and form the state of Israel. 
And that's where my character joins the Haganah, which later became, you know, the IDF and all of that. But then at that time, they had like secret service, I would say. And they were trying to stop this vicious plan of Abba Kovner, because just imagine that plan being executed, what the world would react to the Jews after the war, after if, if something like that would have happened. You, you would never be forgiven for that if this plan was ever really successful. So then my character tries to stop that plan from happening. Michael Aloni, it is so great to talk with you. And I know our listeners are going to love your new film, Plan A. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mordechai Lavovitz is the founder of JQY, an organization that works to support and empower Jewish queer youth. He joins us to talk about his story, as well as the ongoing situation at Yeshiva University. The interview was recorded a few weeks ago, so some of the specific details have changed, but we wanted to share the conversation anyway. Have a listen. Mordechai Lovovitz, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. It is very nice to be here. I want to say something that might be a weird thing to say. Okay. You don't look like a Mordechai Lovovitz. Okay. <laughs> like, Mordechai is like a real name. Like, it's like a name. I, I don't know like... what I was expecting. <laughs> Give me 45 minutes and I promise you, you will only be able to see Mordechai Lovovitz. <laughs> but like, yes. I just, I mean, to me, I don't know what I mean by that. You're wearing a yarmulke, like you have the Mordechai in you, but... I don't know. <laughs> the queerness, the Jewishness, the modernness, the uh, ancientness. We we live in dialectic. I, th- I think that's a beautiful way to start because that's sort of a lot of the work that you do embraces all of those, those pieces. So tell us a little bit about JQI. Yes. Well, JQI started as just a group of yeshiva, mostly boys, um, back in 2001. This is a time before social media. There was no Facebook. There was no... Instagram, all of that did not exist. And there was really no way to find other queer people if you grew up Orthodox. Most of us felt that we were were the only ones. And the idea of finding other queer people in the Orthodox community seemed like some sort of, like, miracle. Then, all of a sudden, social media was birthed. And I don't know if you remember, like, there was, like, things like Friendster and Hot or Not and all these (laughs) new kind of things. So somebody created a website called gayjews.net. I was in my first year of medical school at the time. I found this and I emailed every single person I could find. And I'm like, hi, my name is Mordechai Lvovitz, and I always thought I was the only one, and now I'm going to find, oh, I can't believe there are other gay Orthodox Jews, and I just, we should meet, and we should grow a community, and we should... And I got some creepy responses, <laughs> but I also got some amazing responses. People are like, oh my God, thank you so much, and... So basically what happened was we started this kind of email group, a Yahoo group at the time. Again, I'm really aging myself. <laughs> um, and we called it JQ Youth, Jewish Queer Youth. And uh, and it was built mostly based on the people that um, we all kind of found on this gayjews.net. And also each of us in our lives have met like one or two other people. So it was like this classic organic community. And we started 
meeting. And I, as I was coming out, actually, I hosted a uh, an event in my uh, it was an apart it was like an apartment dorm called being gay in yeshiva, you know, <laughs> like, let's talk about it. And they were, the school reacted really kind of, uh, they were triggered, let's just say. <laughs> and um, and I put up posters all over Yeshiva University. And uh, not only were the posters uh, ripped down, but I was also, uh, uh, security saw me doing it and then took me right to Rabbi Lamb's office. <laughs> And Rabbi Lamb was the president of Yeshiva University at the time. And I knew Rabbi Lamb at the time. And Rabbi Lamb kind of was like, Mordechai, I see what you're doing. I want you to know I think it's great, but I'm not sure we're ready for this. So we, we found a coffee shop in the village, I think on McDougal Street. And we met, at the, there was about 11 of us that met from the Yahoo group. And it was like the moment that we met, it was almost like a world was created. Like, oh my God, we're real. Like, we exist. And we started having 40 people and then 50 people. And then our email list started growing. And one of the things that we decided to do, although there, there was kind of a very, very underground, closeted community of mostly married gay men who would meet clandestinely, mostly to hook up. Um, we were very turned off by that. We, first of all, were frightened by that. <laughs> it was not like most of us were college kids. And we just, we knew what we didn't want to be. And we didn't want to be that. And while we respected the fact that most of us were still closet at the time, I happened to be out, we thought the group itself, JQY, was not going to be closeted. We were going to be uh, a voice within the Orthodox community and we're going to talk as part of the community. So what we decided to do was we all had these experiences with Orthodox rabbis. Uh, in the past, many of us have actually even had conversations with Orthodox rabbis about, oh, poor me, what am I going to do, and blah, blah, blah. And we usually got terrible answers from Orthodox rabbis. Most of the Orthodox rabbis recommended Jonah at the time, which was a conversion therapy group that catered to Orthodox Jews. And this organization was actually, it had a recommendation from the RCA, which is the Rabbinical Council of America. The OU recommended it. The Shiva University recommended and this was like the play. Like, we have an answer to if you're gay. Conversion therapy. And each of us called Orthodox Rabbeim in, in our community and said, Rabbi, can, is there any way that I can speak to you about a very private matter? And of course, they dropped everything. And they were like, yes, 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 absolutely. But here were the stipulations. We were not allowed to go to these rabbis alone. We had to go with at least two other people from JQY. So we were going as a group, as a community, not as an individual. Number two, when we sit down in front of a rabbi, if the rabbi brings up Jonah, which they always did, because they said, oh, I heard of this organization, and maybe there's something to do, we will inform the rabbi that one of the first things on the Jonah website is that their success rate is one-third. That one out of three people in Jonah go from gay to straight. Obviously, that's BS. But, um, but that's what they said. They said it on their website. At that point, one of us will get up and leave the room. And when we'll tell the rabbi, okay, he's straight. Now deal with us. <laughs> right? So we just basically put Jonah off the table. We didn't engage in the fight. We didn't make it combative. We make, we're all on the same side. You're like, okay, conversion therapy, fine. Like, you know, you obviously don't really understand conversion therapy, but we're not going to, we don't have time for that. Um, they say it worked, you know, one third of the people are, are healed or whatever. That, that person left the room. Deal with us. And 
this kind of changed the conversation. It was no longer this debate, orthodox versus LGBTQ existence. It was basically orthodox and LGBTQ people in the room together. This kind of, we're all in the us here. We're not, this is not theoretical. This is not combative. This is like, what are we going to do? In the most classic banal sense of people in orthodoxy going to rabbis and say, hey, you know, what should I do? And we just kind of wanted to know, like, what are you, like, you know, conversion therapy obviously is off the table. What what do you want from us? Like, do you want us to, like, live these secret lives? Should we marry your daughter? <laughs> I'm like, what, what do you want? And at that point, it just started creating rabbinic connections and a lot of support. One of the first events that we did was actually kind of a sad event because shortly after we incorporated, there was a shooting in a Tel Aviv LGBTQ youth center in 2009, summer of 2009. And I think three or four people, young people, were killed. And it was just, besides the fact that people were killed, people were shot, um, most of the kids were closeted and the parents found out about, wow. about their children being queer in the hospitals. So it was it was this multi-level tragedy. And we, LGBTQ people within the Orthodox world, first of all, or just LGBTQ Jews, were very, very uh, moved and, and just kind of like triggered by this incident. But nobody was talking about it in our community. It was like nobody even knew about it. So we decided to, we, we were going to make a Tehillim night. Uh, we were going to read psalms on the rooftop of the JCC Manhattan. And we were going to invite all the Orthodox shoals in the Upper West Side. And Rabbi Blau from Yeshiva University was very inspired by the event. And Rabbi Blau was like, you know, you should do, you should do something like this in Yeshiva University. And I, as someone who went to Yeshiva University, was like, really? Like, what? So at the time, he was the mashkiach, which is the spiritual leader of, of Yeshiva University. And we got a meeting with Richard Joel, who's the president. And Richard Joel could not have been more gracious and excited about this event. And we were like, this is it. Like, let's let's have an event. And the event was called Being Gay in Yeshiva, which was amazing because it was 10 years after my event of Being Gay in Yeshiva. But this time, it was going to be in Yeshiva University. And we had a panel of people who went to Yeshiva University who are now openly gay to talk about their experiences. And it was incredible. I mean, we people thought like maybe you know twenty people would show up. Uh, it was two thousand nine. Over a thousand people showed up. I mean, it was unbelievable. It did really begin a communal conversation. The two thousand nine panel was covered by all the major Jewish newspapers and also secular newspapers. It was really unbelievable. Shortly after the two thousand nine panel, there was a group of rabbis who decided that they were going to act and they were going to create a statement of principles welcoming LGBTQ people in the community. They did it with us, which was incredible. And, and you know what? It's funny because they were surprised with what we were asking for. Basically, what we were asking for it was just telling your rabbi, say definitively that there is nothing wrong with coming out of the closet. That's all we want. And not just coming out of the closet, coming out of the closet and remaining within this community. Because I think yeah. that what you're saying is, how do we be orthodox and gay, not gay, and then leaving the community? Like, how do we create space within this community for people yeah, like us. Yeah, but that's a larger conversation and more complicated conversation. I think that we've ha we have multiple kind of conversations within Judaism of how do we deal with Aguna, how do we deal with Mamzer, how do we deal? I mean, there mm -hmm. there are there are larger conversations that have been generations long. But the important thing is that we can't have a conversation based on lying. 
Yeah. Right? We can't have a conversation where people are afraid to be themselves. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we were demanding rabbis come up with a framework of like, what, right now, what, you know, what do we do in the Orthodox? I mean, we don't have a lot of, I mean, what does it even mean to be a woman in Orthodoxy? Mm -hmm. Like when you have the Torah basically written toward, to men. <laughs> like like yeah. it just, it's, like there are much bigger questions. Orthodoxy, we talked about dialectic, lives in this kind of dialectic, yeah. right? Right, we struggle with, with a tradition that bothers us morally, but we are committed to it because we know that it has value. So surprisingly, no, we, we didn't ask that. And that's what they assumed that, that we wanted. And we didn't want that. I mean, we love it, but like that's not, we don't need our existence tied to some sort of large communal question of how we fit in orthodoxy. We are just ourselves. We just want to be ourselves. You can, everyone individually can work it out, but we need to be able to come out of the closet. We need to be able to definitively say there is nothing halachically wrong with saying I'm gay out loud. So you're even at a more basic level, which is just very existing. basic, very specific, <laughs> openly existing. Right? And there will be no punishment within the community for mm -hmm. people who come out because you can't say, right, if there's nothing halachically wrong, then someone cannot be kicked out of their school because they're openly gay. Mm -hmm. there, uh, someone cannot be kicked out of their house, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have to, you know, just kind of admit that there is a wheel. And then we have the structures in which to kind of be kind and, and really what is, is what we at, we're asking for, just basic kindness. And they, there was a lot of pushback mm -hmm. to saying, just say, simply say it in the first thing. There is no halachic problem with being out of the closet. And a lot of pushback. This is the most controversial part. part and, that, and here is the kind of the emperor's wearing no clothes within orthodoxy. The truth is, is that when the visceral response within orthodoxy to queer people is not to what people do in their bedroom, people don't know what people do in their bedroom, and they certainly don't ask, and, and queer people are not saying. It's not what's threatening. What's threatening is the out-existence of our identities fueled with a sense of collective self-esteem, that we refuse to have shame about who we are, that we are queer, and uh, we are part of this community, and you love us, and you know you love us. <laughs> and, and our queerness, our, our queerness, not only there's nothing essentially problematic or halakhically problematic or hashkafically problematic about our queerness, but it is what makes us different and unique. So that itself benefits the community. Right? It's, it's not that we are, you know, that you're tolerating a halachic issue or a, something problematic, that actually we bring something special. We bring, you know, we're, we're, it's not that we're welcomed, we're kind of, we're appreciated. It, that's where we want it to go. You know, often when people ask me, what do you want us to do? I'm like, <laughs> well, we, we want you to make sure that a queer student in your yeshiva feels not tolerated, but that rabbi can say in the beginning, in, the, in ninth grade, to their class, I want you to know that the probability is that in this class of 40 people, there are multiple queer people in this, in this class. And I want everyone to know that one, they have nothing to be ashamed of. And two, we are better because of that. We are thankful that there are queer people the same way that we are thankful perhaps if there are people, uh, Jews of color in a class, Jews from all different kinds of families, Jews of choice, Jews by, like, like all of these things enhance our community because it brings different stories. That is the framing that we wanted to build on. But as the, the conversation started getting larger, JQY started getting more diverse, which changed also the way we saw ourselves. Um, we started out uh, mostly cis gay men. Uh, slowly but surely, um, more women started coming. 
and and more trans people and more non-binary people started joining the community. And after a while, I come, you know, fast forward to 2017, right? The majority of people in JQY were not cis gay men. So we didn't even see our community that way. We saw our community as a queer community. You know, and it's interesting that this this conversation does come back to YU, right? Yeshiva University, where JQY is currently financially supporting all academic clubs. Because at the moment that we are talking, in yeah. this very specific moment, is that that YU has basically frozen all funding to all undergraduate clubs as the legal issues with the YU Pride Alliance get resolved or worked out or see their way through court. Right. The court, there is a court order that has been upheld right now in the Supreme Court that YU has to recognize the Pride Alliance. Now, rather than recognize the Pride Alliance and follow the court order, YU has decided to adopt a more scorched earth policy and decided to say, nobody gets a club. If we have to accept the LGBTQ club, then none of the students get clubs, uh, which basically allows them through kind of a you know, like sleazy loophole to still deny queer people their club, but do it somewhat more fair. We, I don't I mean, but it's very transparent, right? Like this is, and I think people are correct in, in comparing this to kind of like some of the Confederate governors in the 50s and 60s and 70s who decided rather than integrate our pools, no pools for anybody, right? This is like, if you look in the news, like this is exactly how the Confederacy and the Confederate gov- uh, governors responded. I mean, it, it's childish, but unfortunately it hurts the students and more so it, it pits students against each other. The narrative becomes you don't get a club because the queer people want a club. Mm-hmm. So you should maybe talk to your friends and get them to stop being rabble rousers, right? So it's actually creating quite quite a toxic environment. So we thought JQI, its mission is to support and empower and provide crisis resources to LGBTQ people within the Orthodox community, particularly youth and particularly in areas where there's rejection, where there's oppression, where they're at risk. Um, so this was a case where we felt like we had to act because we thought LGBTQ students were at risk. We didn't have to think. We also have a crisis line. There were LGBTQ people from YU calling our crisis line. We just hired a psychologist. So all of the psychologist appointments were taken up. I mean, they, there was a crisis going on. Uh, it was scary. And I mean, the, the stories that we were hearing, like there were teachers who decided to just devote their entire class to talk about the court case, not realizing that there are likely people in their class who are part of that court case who can't even speak up and clarify things. And not only that, it's like, let's take this class to talk about the most stressful thing in your life right now. Like, how could you even learn in an environment like that? And also, it feels extremely exposing to have everyone now talk about you. It was really creating a toxic environment. So JQI felt like, you know, there has to be a better way. And at least in the interim, if, if um, you know, we know how to support clubs at colleges. And we thought, well, what if we just expanded that temporarily to all clubs in YU for all club activities? And therefore, any club that wanted to continue, whether it's, you know, I think there was few events that were canceled because of this club cancellation. And the clubs that were canceled was like a trip to the zoo. <laughs> like, and we're like, no, if you need help getting to the zoo, apply to YU, we will help you get to the zoo. And certainly, we we don't want uh, you to blame queer people. And I think more importantly, we we felt that YU was using queer people to take things away and punish the student body. We wanted to change the narrative and say, in honor of queer people, we're going to benefit the student body. No, we are we are a benefit to this university, and we and we kind of demand to be seen that way. 
because we're wonderful. <laughs> we're fabulous. <laughs> I want to go back to you. I'm thinking about what I said to you at the beginning of this conversation. You do straddle these these different worlds. You have the nail polish that's amazing, Thank and you, you. have <laughs> the, the yarmulke on, right? Like you outwardly represent a lot of different things mm-hmm. and inwardly. And I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you were involved in sort of this, like, it gets better movie right. for, mm-hmm. within the Jewish sure. community. And so what does it feel like from your vantage point now? And how important is it for you to be like, yeah, Mordecai Lubavitz, I'm here? Um, I think that it's no coincidence that JQY, when we did incorporate and become an organization, uh, if you go to our philosophy page, our philosophy is just Elu Elu, um, these and these which means literally is we contain multiples. We can disagree essentially, we can have conflicting identities and yet feel whole. And that is what fuels us. That is, I think, our, the greatest gift that queer people can, can bring to not only the Jewish community, but, but to the world. It's unbelievable that JQY is a space we have a drop-in center right now for ages 13 to 23. Some of the people who come to the drop-in center come because they are angry at orthodoxy and they are trying desperately to get out. We also have some people who come to the drop-in center who have sacrificed everything to stay orthodox and be orthodox. And in this kind of space, we have both people literally going in diametrically opposed paths, and yet they are here to support each other. That is the magic of JQI. It's not a matter of, oh, accepting LGBTQ people. It's understanding that we can not only disagree, be on different paths, but be devoted to each other's well-being, right? It, it, it's the ability to contain multitudes, but ultimately contain it in a warm, Jewish, loving, familial space where we can cultivate everyone in terms of growing to be the, their best self. Mordechai Lubavitz, it's been an honor to have you on Unorthodox. <laughs> Everyone can learn more about JQY at jqyouth.org. The Instagram is at Jewish Queer Youth. Facebook is JQ Youth. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. Amazing. It was so lovely. And hopefully this will only be the beginning of a conversation. I mean, yes. this is the Unorthodox podcast. This is the place to have conversations. And uh, this is just the beginning of a very long conversation. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Longtime tablet readers have been mourning the departure of Yair Rosenberg, who for many years was a senior writer at Tablet, now writes for The Atlantic magazine, for whom he has a newsletter called Deep Stettel. He's a lovely man, a fine and discerning writer, and also a composer of songs. He joins us to talk about his new album, Az Yashir, Songs for Shabbat. Yair Rosenberg, welcome back to Unorthodox. Great to be back. So. Before we get to your new album, I want to talk about what you're doing at The Atlantic, about your newsletter, Deep Shtetl. Tell our listeners what you're doing lately. Yeah, so since November, we launched this very curiously named creature at The Atlantic. It's called Deep Shtetl. A lot of people get it in their inbox. It also exists on The Atlantic's website, like any other articles. And we cover stories about religion, politics, and culture. Uh, which is somewhat code for anything I find interesting, but also with an obvious sort of Jewish lens very often, which won't surprise people who are familiar with my work from Tablet. And the idea is that we're not writing necessarily for the Jews so much as from the Jews and saying the Jewish people have thousands of years of experience of texts and traditions, and how might those things help us understand the problems and the issues we face in the world today? And when you're not writing, when you're not reporting, when you're not tweeting, um, you're you're a singer and you're an arranger, you're a musician. So tell us about Az Yashir, your new album of Shabbat music. Yeah. So uh, for the last seven years, uh, as a very strange hobby, I have been uh, <laughs> composing and singing uh, original Jewish music, particularly songs to sing on Shabbat, because those are songs that are in some ways the most universal, the sort of words that a lot of people know, you know, even if you're not particularly, like you may not keep Shabbat, right? You may not uh, have as much connection to the Jewish music world or universe, but we know, you know, the Chadodi, some people know you didn't have, you know, Shalom Aleichem. And so it's a wonderful thing that many, many different people from different backgrounds share. And uh, the beautiful thing about our tradition is that anyone can write a new melody to those words. And you don't have to worry about coming up with killer lyrics because someone already did it for you. And so like saves me a lot of trouble. And so the idea of the album was to take people through the experience of Shabbat, sort of from start to finish, but with new melodies for words that many people already know. 
So you start with Yedid Nefesh, you have Lechado D, right? And then suddenly you're, you're going through and you've got, you know, Dror Yikra and stuff that people are used to seeing maybe at their college campus or with their family or their friends. And so it's a real mix. Uh, the musical style is much more contemporary. So the idea was, here are these ancient uh, lyrics and let's fuse them with more modern styles. Uh, there's a strong influence of uh, folk music, particularly Irish folk music. Um, and there's also some more like electronic and, uh, you know, EDM style influences. And so this is the sort of music that you might be familiar with and the sort of words you might be familiar with, but sort of putting them together uh, in a way that hopefully hasn't been done as much before and that sort of revivifies and uh, refreshes. And there's some really amazing stories behind some of your takes on these songs. Will you tell us a little bit about your rendition of Lachado Di and the story behind it? Yeah. So like I mentioned, my grandfather was a Hasidic composer. Uh, he escaped the Holocaust through Shanghai. While he's in Shanghai, stuck with all of these other uh, orphans, people whose families have been massacred, uh, people who don't know where they're going to go. They don't speak the language of the place they're in, and they don't know if they have a future. He, along with the others, receives this letter of encouragement from the United States that sort of is passed along. And it's a poem that is trying to raise their spirits and to say there will be some, you know, redemption or hope at the end of this story. Uh, and back then, if you wanted to remember something, you couldn't share it on your phone, right? You couldn't photocopy it, right? What you had to do is you had to put it to music. And so they asked my grandfather, who was a composer, can you put this to music? And he did. And the song is, continues to be sung to this day. And this brings us back to the album because it has a curious feature that it shares with the Chador um, which is, you know, this primary uh, Shabbat song, which is my grandfather's Shir HaGeula, the song of redemption that he composed uh, to these words. It changes tunes from like a dirge, from a mournful tune uh, to an upbeat march partway through. And so at the first half of it is sad, and then suddenly it becomes happy. And it makes perfect sense in sort of the words, because what happens is, is you have these words that are talking about how we have lost some of the greatest people of our generation, but then it's saying, but we are still here, right? And we will live on. And so in Lechado D, in many congregations, if you've been to a synagogue, you may notice that partway through, they changed the tune from often sort of low-key to you know, upbeat, from slow to fast. Um, and that happens at the midway point at a place called Lote Voshi. And so in the album, we have two Lechado Ds. We have a slow Lechado D and we have a fast Lechado D. Um, and the Lote Voshi of the album is not dissimilar uh, to my grandfather's tune in that it becomes upbeat and it reminds people that, you know, sometimes things can be difficult or dark, that there is something more on the other side. And the words Lote Voshi mean, don't be despondent, don't be despair, don't be downcast. You know, and the final words of that verse are, the city will be rebuilt on its foundations. And I composed, you know, this song and then we recorded it and I got it back during the pandemic and nobody's in synagogue, nobody is singing, nobody knows when any of those things are going to happen. And it was very difficult. And I was listening to it and I'm like, well, who am I going to share this song with? But the whole point of the song, the whole point of changing the tune is to remind yourself that it might seem really dark, whether you're in Shanghai or you're under COVID lockdown, but that there is something more that you can look forward to and that you can rebuild. Let's have a listen to Yair Rosenberg's take on Lo Tavoshi. Yair Rosenberg, thank you so much for coming back to hang out with me. Tell our listeners where they can find this amazing Shabbat album. 
So you can get it in any streaming site that you have. You can go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash azyashir, A-Z-Y-A-S-H-I-R, bit.ly slash azyashir. And uh, there you'll find every possible streaming service on the planet at which you can either add it to your library or you know download and buy the MP3s. If you, for some reason, want a physical CD, which um, you can go to uh, motherwest.com uh, and uh, you can look up the album as you share and you will be able to buy a physical CD. We have beautiful physical CDs for those people for whom that is still how they like to have their music. Amazing. And the best way to follow along with you and your work at The Atlantic? The Deep Shtetl newsletter uh, is available at theatlantic.com. If you search for Deep Shtetl, and my name, Yair Rosenberg. That is a very unusual combination of words, and the odds are extraordinarily good that it will be the first Google search result. Yair Rosenberg, it's been great catching up. Uh, congratulations on this album, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much, Steph. Our Gentile this week is one of the greatest humans I have ever met. He is Pastor Corey Brooks, and we spoke to him at our live show in Chicago a couple of weeks back. He's the founder of Project Hood, an organization in Chicago. We're calling him the pastor on the roof because in his work for Project Hood, he camped out on the roof of a motel for quite some time to bring awareness to gun violence, drug dealing, sex trafficking, and prostitution in the area. Here's Pastor Corey Brooks. Yes. I'll wait till the rapturous applause ends. Is this your first time on a bima of a synagogue up here? No, I was um, with... um, You're Jewish. (laughs) Rabbi Michael Siegel, I uh, spoke, I forget the name of... um, Yes. Anshay Emmett, there you go. A bunch of Jews yelling at you. You've been up for like two minutes. I spoke there from the Torah. Nice. Okay, so tell our listeners who don't know about the roof. So 10 years ago, I went up on the roof of a motel that was across the street from our church. It was a very seedy place. It had a lot of sex trafficking, drugs. The gangs were using it. And I decided to go up on the roof to bring awareness to the violence in Chicago, but also to raise money to purchase it. And I went up there on November the 20th, and I came down on February 24th with enough money. And I bought the motel and tore it down. And that was 10 years ago. And... um. We started on a journey to raise money to build a community center that now costs $35 million. So I said, we didn't have any money to build this community center. We're in the hood on the south side of Chicago. What are we going to do? So 10 years later, I said, I'll go back up on the roof. It worked the first time and I'll do it again. So 10 years later, um, this past November 20th, on the anniversary, I went back up on the roof of uh, makeshift containers. We put eight train containers together. And I have been there ever since. And uh, I'm taking a break tonight to be here. But I'll, when I leave here, I'll go back and stay on the roof in a tent uh, where I've been since November 20th. Uh, and the only time I came down is to, to bury my mom and, of course, to go to um, do events like this. So I'm on the roof until I raise 18. Well, we raised 18.5 million. We got 16.5 million to go. I think that's pretty good. Wow. 18 million is a very auspicious number. Yeah. Um, you know, I almost said rabbi before I slip. <laughs> Go right uh, ahead. I, I, am, I am so fascinated by people who take this journey because it strikes me as a truly kind of magical choice to make. Was there a time in which you sort of looked around and said, you know what I'm going to do with life? I'm, I'm going to be a pastor. How'd you get here? Well, to be honest, uh, growing up, I could not stand pastors. 
I don't know if it was because I had bad experiences or in our neighborhood, I just didn't like, I just did not like pastors. The last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. I actually went to Boston State University and majored in political science because I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, I actually went to law school at the University of Florida. Uh, my roommate was from uh, New York. He was Jewish. So I don't know if that makes me Jewish, but since we're talking about who knows who, I just thought I'd throw that in what there. Was, what was his name? <laughs> uh, Jonathan. With an age? <laughs> No H, right? No H. No, no H. Well, <laughs> you don't have to make you Jewish, but it drove you from the law. It, drove, it did drive you from the law. So uh, I decided I did not want to be a lawyer. That was not my calling. And I, so I went to seminary and um, decided to be a pastor. And I think it's the best decision um, that I could ever make. So for our Jewish audience who hear words like father, pastor, and they're like, I know they mean different things. Like, tell us what a pastor is. Give us the lay of the land. Pretend we don't know anything. Pretend we like totally stopped at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Take us which, forward. Which in fact we do. No, yeah, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so pastor, elder, bishop, they really all come from the same Greek word. But even though they come from the same Greek word, they still have different offices. So a pastor is over a local congregation he is much like a rabbi who shepherds a group of people, leads them and guides them in the word. That's my job, just to help people to grow and give them guidance in their journey on life. That's it. So I want to talk about this work, uh, which genuinely strikes me as the most difficult thing you could do, because I think so much of what we're looking at right now, you know, this talk of so-called deaths of despair, you know, so many people succumbing to opioid addiction, so many people mm. succumbing to alcoholism, yeah. uh, crime, etc. It seems to me that we're in the throes of a real spiritual crisis in, in this country and particularly in communities that are hard hit by crime, poverty, violence, other sort of systemic issues. How do you, and this is a huge question, I realize how unfair it is, but how do you go about to people who are so, you know, battered by so much of that and say, I'm going to plug you back in. I'm going to give you something that gives you hope. Yeah. You know, several things. One, I think a lot of people need a lot of grace. And what I mean by grace is a lot of unconditional love without all the strings attached, just loving people. Um, I think that everyone needs affirmation, attention, and affection. And I try to do that. And I try to live by that. And I think the more affirmation, affirming people, the more affection, uh, the more attention we can give people, the sooner we can help them to change the direction of their lives. And so I really think there are a lot of people who are missing those things in their lives. Maybe it's an absent parent in their life. Like in our neighborhood, 80% of the households where we are are single parent households. So we have a lot of young boys who are getting involved in gangs, getting involved in activities because they don't get that guidance, that affirmation, that attention, that affection. And I think if you could give them that, display that in your life, it, it, makes, it makes things better for so many people. Where do you go when you feel broken? When you've had a day, you look at these kids like, ah, who's, who's your source of affirmation and affection? Well, um, I go to the Psalms. I love David. Why? Because he was a warrior, but he was also a worshiper. He was a man after God's own heart. So I really love reading the, the Psalms. And I try to spend a lot of time uh, with the Lord, especially when, you know, when you're on a rooftop, and you're, and you're trying to raise money. <laughs> you're very close. Yeah. You, you can get depressed sometimes. And so I try to spend a lot of time in meditation. I try to spend a lot of time in reading. And I have some people that I go to when I'm just 
you know, at, at wit's end that I talk to and that I lean on and tell them the stuff that I don't want anyone to know. I promise not to, you know, kind of take over this conversation too much. But as you, you, you can promise. See, no, go right ahead. As you can see, this is, this is something that interests me a lot. Um, tell me about your, your prayer practice. I've always found, you know, I struggle with it myself, even though I do it twice a day for some time now. You prayed backstage, I, I will say. I, I sh- we were like trying to prepare for the show and he was praying. It was like a little annoying. There was some beer um, caught at dinner. There was some Mari Vichul. <laughs> there was there's yeah. a lot of action. Yeah. It, it strikes me as still, again, every time I knew it, it's such a weird thing to do to have this conversation. What's what's your prayer life like? So I, do, I have these things that I call formal prayers. It's kind of like what you do three times a day. Um, those are my formal times where I actually take time out and I'm going to pray. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, before I go do anything, the first thing I do is I hit my knees and I pray. Every day at 12 o'clock, I don't care where I am, who I'm around, what I'm doing, I stop and pray. Every night before I go to bed, I don't care where I am, what city I'm in, I pray. And then throughout the day, as I go through events, as I come across something, I'll say a short prayer. Even today when I was sitting there, I was like, okay, Lord, bless me. I'm going to go up here and talk. I just, so I, I constantly am in a, a state of prayer. I try to be at least. Imagine that the, we three are Jews. I'm, 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 <laughs> I don't imagine. It shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> and I ask this in all seriousness. I mean, I've spent my life reporting on and interviewing religious people, mostly Christians, because we're in America. And I'm usually asking the questions. And I want you to imagine that you are evangelizing us. Sell us. You know, like why, what's great about Christianity? Should we be Christian? Do you look at us and feel we should be? And if so, why? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I would tell you is that- I'm glad you prayed before this, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're going to need, gonna it. need the, it. The first thing I would tell you, uh, if I were trying to evangelize and you were talking, is that I wouldn't try to tell you, I would try to show you. I think a lot of times we try to tell people about Christ that we believe in without showing Christ. So I'm not really big on doing a lot of talking. I'm big on doing a lot of showing. So I'm going to love you into a relationship with God. I'm going to affirm you into a relationship with God. I'm going to spend time and build a relationship with you. I'm not going to just try to come up and we call it disciple you. And I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know you. I don't know your family. I don't know your background. I think that's kind of weird. Uh, I, I would much more rather build a relationship for you to get to know me and for you to see God working in my life so that you become interested so much so that hopefully, eventually, you'll ask me questions. And when you start asking me questions, I'll start to reel you in. And I would probably start with, you know, just jokingly telling you that you do know Jesus was Jewish. And we would start there, start the relationship right there. So, Pastor Brooks, you know, when we think of rabbis, we know, like, they lead services, they meet with you in their office, but there's also, like, the pastoral work is 24-7, 24-6, right, maybe, if you're Shabbat observant. This is a full-time gig. You can't really leave it at the office. So, you know, we talked about prayer a little bit, but, like, how do you sort of unplug and recharge yourself? Um, Besides going up on a roof? Yeah, besides the—I mean, like, you're really in it all the time. Are you just, like— cooking a meal, like what is, what What do you do for you? Yeah, I'm probably a bad example and I'll be real honest. Um, I get asked that question a lot. And one of the things that I realize about me is that I am probably a workaholic. I am probably the last person to teach someone how to balance their life and do all of these things. I am, I know I am an extremist and I'm either all in or all out. And when I'm all in, I'm fully engaged. I'm giving my all. 
And sometimes I do that at the detriment of me and everyone around me. Um, so, I, you know, it's balance is important. I just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, as we told you, the Gentile of the Week always has yes. a special prerogative to ask us a GCW yes. question. You, you have here a panel of Jewish experts certified by yes. Barney Greengrass on the Upper West Side, the, the Sturgeon King. Rabbi Barney Greengrass. And, yeah. by, uh, by a deli near you, by Beth Sholem. And you sent us a really, really interesting question that we've thought about. Do you want to tell everyone what your question was? You want to? I, I, you should tell them. You want me to tell it? Yeah, you should tell it. Okay. Let's see. I think I have it here. So your question was, were the ancient Hebrews of the Old Testament people of color? And if so, how is it that most people who identify as Jewish are or identify as white? Does that sound right? We got some audience murmurs there. That's a good question. It's a really good question. I mean, I see a couple of people who might fit in the color area, but. You know, I, I can't tell you. I, I think that's the best question we have. Not one of the, I'm going all out. It is the best question that we have received because it's one that I thought about so often. I, I'm a ninth generation Israeli. You know, I was born in Israel. and literally none of none of this has ever occurred to me and i came to this country and then i started hearing questions like well you know but aren't jews white and the premise itself baffled me to such an extent because first of all you rooted it in the question of you know the biblical hebrews mm -hmm. and and their origins uh if you read talmud you see these 9 to 1100 years of upheavals, you know, Alexander the Great, the Seleucids, uh, the Romans, the, you know, Sasanians, all these empires are coming and establishing great kind of swaths of land and like exchanging populations all over. And so the Jews that were rooted in their indigenous, you know, as the indigenous people of the land of Israel were uprooted repeatedly again and again and again to go to modern day Iraq, to go to Egypt, to go to Syria, to go all over the place, which is very common practice. But then something even more interesting happened, right? Then the temple is destroyed and we go all over the place. And you could go right now, um, and, and this is a lot of what we do in our professional life, you could go to a church, uh, <laughs> Freudian slip, you go to a synagogue Sorry. in Marrakesh, uh, which I had the opportunity to do not long ago, uh, and you could go to a synagogue in Hong Kong, and you could go to a synagogue in Addis Ababa, and you could go to a synagogue everywhere you like, and you could see Jews who are black and Jews who are Asian, and Jews who look completely different. And, and once the prayer starts, it is exactly the same prayer uh, because we are not and And it's probably a psalm. Right. Like most and, of our prayer book and, is just and, psalms. And don't, we're not in, and don't necessarily think of ourselves in, in this category of being white. So to me, this whole assumption that we sometimes, or that somehow are, strikes me as frankly completely odd and really baffling if if we're anything as mark likes to say it's a family it's a faith and if we're rooted anywhere uh we are the indigenous people of the land of israel promised to us by hashem and uh the fact that we have kind of been dispersed all over the world makes us that much more interesting and that much further from any easy to define racial category the only thing that i could say is were Jews, which is so difficult even for a lot of Jews to understand and which makes it that much more interesting and maddening to the people who hate us, but also people who love us. I don't have a lot to add to that. <laughs> well, <laughs> but 
I would say I was thinking about this question. I mean, obviously these are American categories, right? That one of the things, one of the things that the American racial caste system did was it created black and white. And now people will often say black, white, and brown, but these were systems created by a history that includes a history of enslavement and a history of dispossession and a history of laws that sought to classify people by their race. In Europe, the people who liked us thought of us as Jews or Israelites or Hebrews, if you were a French Jew or a British Jew or German Jew. And the people who hated us thought of us as Jews, but it it certainly wasn't based on melanin at all in the skin. I did have just one thought that I would add, which was, because people do have trouble, including Jews have trouble looking for a metaphor. And I always say, we're not an ethnicity, first and foremost. We're not a religion, first and foremost. We're a family. Um, a kinship network that adopts people in and we don't all, and marries people in. And so we're going to look a lot of different ways. But one metaphor that just occurred to me, and I'm still working it out is, you know, we understand when we say that someone is Latino, that they could be very pale. They could be a blonde, blue-eyed Latino. And we also understand they could be African looking um, and of African answer and be Latino. We understand that that's a familial metaphor that describes a heritage that is really has very little to do with skin color. And I think Judaism is, is or Jewishness is in some ways the same. I think it's a really fascinating question. And I think, you know, for me, and this may be the case for a lot of you, you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I grew up always thinking like, there is a target on our back. We are not safe, right? Like, I mean, we're in many ways safe in America, or at least we sort of thought we were until a few years ago. I mean, but as we've sort of had these racial reckonings as a country, I think a lot of Jewish people have sort of started to sort of reframe how they see themselves and like questions of privilege and white passingness, I think have have been a little complicated for Jews who, I would say don't feel white in the way that wasp, you know, white Anglo-Saxon right. Protestants feel white. Like we don't feel that that thing, but in many ways it is sort of thrust upon, like it, it is how we are seen. But it's, I think it's really complicated for a lot of Jews to unpack. And I think we're all sort of trying to sort of do that work to understand like how we see ourselves versus how we are seen and all these, you know, important conversations we're having as a country. And Jews are sort of in like this very sort of strange spot in all of them because- the insidiousness of anti-Semitism was that like the Jew could sort of infiltrate your society because you didn't necessarily know who they were and they could pass in your society. And then, you know, according to this very ancient conspiracy theory, then they're going to take it over. And so the danger of Jew, like it's it's very complicated for Jews to unpack. And I think that's sort of a, what a lot of us are grappling. I think in a productive way, in many ways, we're sort of having these, these complicated conversations. So I I want to, I want to, Slightly disagree with this because I actually find much of the way that we have this conversation right now supremely unproductive. And again, I speak as I'm an immigrant here. Uh, But the first time I came to this country, I was sent to this beautiful land by the Israeli scouts to spend three and a half months living in Memphis, Tennessee. Before (laughs) that, my understanding of what America was like and what race relations like, like I, I mean, I've probably heard the name Martin Luther King Jr., but I didn't, I couldn't tell you anything right. other than great man who you know helped free his people. And then I come here and get really interested, and I start studying, and I hear him speak. You know, I've been to the mountaintop. It's like, what mountaintop do you think he's talking about? He's quoting scripture. And then I read, you know, Sojourner Truth, standing in front of literally three or 400 white racist people who really want to physically hurt her and saying to them, I am Esther here to save my people. And I hear Frederick Douglass and I hear Barack Obama, you know, talking about the Joshua generation. And I understand that these people are speaking the language of the Bible, which to quote my friend, Rabbi Ari Lam, the Bible is every bit to me the moral founding document of this country 
as the Constitution is its political founding document. And I would very much love to see the conversation about race and about prejudice and about civil rights and about Jews and about blacks and about America return to these roots. Great. Pastor, <laughs> if I may be so Christian, it was a hell of a question. <laughs> a heck of a question. A heck mean. of a question. Pastor, it was an honor to fellowship with you. Are we using that word right? Yeah, cornea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being our guest here tonight. There That was Pastor Brooks. If you were as inspired as we were, you can learn more about Project Hood at projecthood.org. Mazel tovs. Leah Leibowitz, do you have a mazel tov? Yeah, I would like to wish a hearty mazel tov to my son, Hudson, who at some point sitting in shul and being, I should say both of my children, Lily and Hudson, were amazing, amazing, amazing through a lot, a lot, a lot of shul this holiday season, as we say in the yeshiva. But at some point, Hudson turns to me, apropos of nothing, during the very long Yom Kippur service and says, hey, what do you call a repentant Wookiee? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, what do you call a repentant Wookiee? I was like, what? And he looks at me and says, Chewbacca. <laughs> uh. Again, this is a joke for seven people, but if you're one of them, you're welcome. And Hudson, <laughs> mazel tov for that. I have nothing left to teach you. Mic drop. Parenting mic drop. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to Meredith Shiner. She's the host of our brand new podcast, The Franchise. I know we've, we've been told we are too promotional. We are too self-promotional, but I'm so proud of Meredith. And I'm so proud of the show. And I think all of our listeners are going to love it. You heard the trailer in our feed last week. Go and listen to the first episode by searching for The Franchise, Jew Sports in America in your feed or going to tabletmag.com slash franchise. I have a triple mazel tov. First, I want to give a mazel tov to Annie Bass and Marissa Weiss, friends from way back who welcomed their second son sometime in the past few weeks. I don't know. Time has stood still, but but they emerged into the new year with baby boy Jonah and a huge mazel tov to the Basses and the Weisses and the grandparents and all of them. Also, just in over the transom, the news ticker, I literally have a news ticker that comes out like in old timey, like in the sting. And on the news ticker, former tabletier Mark Tracy and Amanda Hess have welcomed Lev Gabriel Tracy to their growing Mishpacha. And so a welcome to the world to LG Tracy. Such a good name. I'm so excited to meet you, little Lev. And finally, to all the shofar blowers out there, I have never blown a shofar. It looks really hard. I don't think I have the lung power. And across the world, thousands of you, of all genders and races, but united in your Judaism, stepped up and blew the shofar. Mazel tov. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazel, Tanya Singer, Star from Inator, Daron Rousquet, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Donate to our fundraiser at tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. That's tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. Get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Gollum. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Diana Fursco at the Village Temple in downtown New York City. We come to you from Tablet Studios, which this week is a mobile sukkah unit. You can actually read in the Talmud about whether that's one of the permissible ways to build a sukkah. If it's on top of an elephant on a sailboat and it's a podcast studio. Is it a kosher sukkah? The answer next week. 
Shalom, friends. I have a screaming baby here now.